It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I know this sounds like it's live, but this is Memorex. <laughs> I am Chris Rosebro. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And today, um, I am out of the studio, out on business. So, uh, today's show is going to be a little shorter by half than normal programs, but that's okay. Got a good lesson lined up for you today. Today you're going to be hearing a Sunday school lesson that I recently taught. Yeah, um, I teach adult Sunday school over at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Would love to have you come by if you're in the area. Divine service. Uh, we have divine service at 9.15 in the morning and my class starts at roughly 10.30ish. And so if you're in the Southern California area and would actually like to sit in on a on a uh, good Bible study and, uh, and more importantly, sit in on divine service with us in, uh, at our church, you can do so. Uh, look us up at faith-lcms.org. That's our website there for the church where I teach. Would love to have you stop by. Well, today's lesson, we're going to be talking uh, about Abraham and uh, talking about Hagar Ishmael, Sarai, and Isaac, and uh, taking a look at uh, what's going on in the book of Genesis there, and uh, Genesis chapter 16, and uh, circle back and uh, take a look at how this uh, passage is used by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. And as an extra bonus, we're actually I'm going to actually make this more of a readings less, uh, reading lesson because we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Galatians, reading it in full context, so that when we get to the part regarding Hagar and Sarai, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, I'm going to sign off here. If you'd like to email me regarding the lesson today, please do so at TalkBack at Fighting for the Faith. And just a reminder, uh, if you'd like to support uh, Fighting for the Faith and our, and our outreach here on Pirate Christian Radio, you can do so by uh, sending your gift to Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, SJC, California, 92693. So without any further ado, here is, uh, here is my lesson on, uh, on Hagar, Sarai, and promises, and slavery, and all that type of stuff. All right. Welcome to Sunday School. We're going to head on down the road. I always do my presuppositions. This is a little ritual. It's always good to keep us grounded in these because nowadays there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Tomorrow on my radio program, I'm going to be reviewing... Um, a pastor from Pasadena who's an Episcopal pastor. His name is Ed Bacon. And he appeared on Oprah's um, spiritual podcast. She's got some kind of a thing that she does. She just got done doing multiple weeks with Eckhart Tolle. And then she had Ed Bacon on a couple weeks ago. And Ed Bacon is supposedly a Christian. And Ed Bacon, um, on Oprah's spiritual program kind of sets the authority for what he says regarding spirituality based upon the fact that God actually talked to him. And they waxed eloquent about Elijah and the still, small voice. See, that's how you know God's talking to you, because it's a still, small voice. You know, when I read in the book of Revelation, (laughs) you know, and you hear the trumpet blasts and things going on like that, um, it's not going to be a still, small voice. It'll be the kind of voice that'll make you tremble in your boots. Anyway, so... The point of all of that is, is that I don't care if he, if he claims that Jesus Christ and him actually have breakfast every day at Denny's. 
Okay, what he says contradicts the Scripture. Therefore, God hasn't spoken to him. Somebody else has. Either himself or a demon. Serious. There's, there's like very few options here. We believe in sola scriptura. That is, the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the supreme authority and truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. I don't care if you have angels that are your wingmen when you're driving or if you're getting direct communication through your radio in your car, okay, from, claiming to be from heaven. If it contradicts the Scripture, it's not from God, period. And I'll go even so far as to say it's a very rare day when God communicates to us any other way than through His Scripture. Learn to hear His voice in God's Word. That's where it's sure. That's where it's certain. This other stuff, 99.9% of the time when people say God's talking to them, they're selling you spiritual poison. And sell is the right word. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, we are saved through Christ's work alone. We're looking at Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Last week we talked a lot about Abram. Spent some time the week before that talking about Melchizedek. We're going to continue talking about Abram. And and as a result of it, this class today is almost going to be a readings class. It just Because the topic we're going to cover needs to do that. And so, uh, you have the Bible in, in the pew in front of you. Grab it, because I don't even know if you're going to be able to read what, I, what, I'm, what I'm going to be putting up here. Just a reminder, the overarching theme of Scripture, when we look at the story of Adam, we look at the story of Noda, Abram, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets, anybody. Okay, These stories are not there so that you can learn how to become like Noah. So that you can be a conqueror like Joshua. These men are not necessarily held up as examples as far as their morality is concerned because the one thing that they all are are sinners. Instead, their faith, their trust in God is the thing that is held up. And the central theme of Scripture is Christ's redemptive work for sinners in all ages. They're, the dispensationalists have it wrong. They chop up human history into different dispensations. And depending on what type of dispensationalist you are, there could be seven dispensations, there could be nine. There's even like 12 and 14 dispensational dispensationalists. Throw that all out. People from day one, when Adam and Eve fell, until the last person takes their last breath on the last day, all human beings are saved by the one plan if you would. That is trust and faith in Jesus Christ. The patriarchs and those in the Old Testament look forward to the promise yet to be fulfilled. And the very first proto-gospel, the very first instance of the gospel, is when Adam and Eve sin and God judges them and says that there will be a seed who will come who will crush the head of the serpent and in the process have his heel bruised. Right? So Adam and Eve were profoundly aware of a promise of a coming seed, the one who would fix things and make it right. So in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to Christ and we're following the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Okay? What's really funny, in a very sick and twisted way, is the Da Vinci Code actually understands the concept of a bloodline. 
Okay? And so they, they claim that the Holy Grail, you know, this mythical thing, the Holy Grail, is not really a cup, or a, it's, it's actually a womb. And it's following the bloodline of the sons and daughters and granddaughters and, you know, of Jesus Christ. Because, you know, he and Mary Magdalene were, you know, hooking up. Okay? Now, that's a satanic lie. But the funny thing is, is the nugget of truth in it is the fact that if you really understand the concept of a Holy Grail, yeah, let's take this and let's run it through the Gospel. There is a royal bloodline that goes from Adam to Christ. And from Christ moving forward, it's only Christ. And as we look in the Old Testament, we're following the bloodline of the true Holy Grail. When you drink of that cup, you will have eternal life. And what is that cup filled with? The blood of Christ. You see what I'm saying? So what we're doing is we're following the bloodline in the Old Testament. And it's all pointing to Christ. So, we are in Genesis chapter 16 today. This is a highly misunderstood passage. Okay? And we'll talk about the misunderstanding about it as we go. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Remember, the recurring theme as we look in the Old Testament regarding the story of Abram is this promise, this promise that the world would be blessed through the seed, not seeds, the seed of Abram, right? Problem is, is that Sarah, Sarai, even though she's still hot in her old age, you're going to find that out again later as we keep reading, okay, she's still good looking. She's old and well past childbearing years. The problem is, they understand that God has promised that through Abram the seed would come. But the question that is they're struggling with is, is the seed going to come through Sarai or not? And it doesn't look that way because, I mean, look how old she is. There's no way she can give birth to a child, right? So now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Stop for a second. I've sat through many a sermon, listened to many a preacher who focus in on the whole sex thing. Who cares about the sex thing at this point? That's really not what this story is about. Okay? In fact, if that's what you're going to really focus on, it doesn't really, you're kind of missing the whole point. It tells me more about you than it tells me about the, the passage. And Luther makes a good point here that there are many who basically interpret this as them not having faith. Luther completely discards that and says, no, it's not that they didn't have faith. They did believe that what God said was true, that through Abram, would, that, he, that he would have multiple children and that the nations would be blessed and his descendants would be as numerous as the seashore. Both Abram and Sarai believed that. They were sensitive to that, and just basically said, well, maybe it's not, God doesn't want 
me, Sarai, to be the one that this happens through. When you interpret it through that, we don't have this as some kind of big moral failing or whatever. In fact, it's really not even a moral failing because there was no law given by which what, this, this, what was going on here would be considered wrong or immoral. So to the neighbors who are living around there, no one would look at her and go, oh, oy vey, what is she doing? They would say, okay, that's the logical thing to do. And notice she says have children for her. Completely legal. It's not going to cause the neighbors to go, oh. you know, culturally there wasn't a problem here. Okay? So the issue here is, is that they do trust that what God is saying is true. What God has promised is true. It's just that Sarah has gotten to the point where she is despaired regarding her being the one by which the promised seed would be born. Right. She takes matters into her own hands. Okay. And Abram goes along with... (laughs) Why not? Never understood polygamy. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've got a lot of women who work for me. That's not polygamy, but man, is that dramatic. <laughs> it's drama all the time. Yeah. I, you know, they say that Solomon was the wisest man who ever walked the earth. I'm thinking, no way. Not at all. I don't, I don't get it. Anyway. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and went. And he went into, her, into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. What's going on there? She looked with contempt on her mistress. The concept here is, is that women's value in society... And self-value. Men, we like to say we value ourselves based upon our work and what we do. What do you do for a living? Well, I, you know, and you list off things. Well, a woman, back in this culture, self-worth and cultural worth was all wrapped up in childbearing. So what happens is, is that Hagar conceives, and now she sees herself as better than Sarai. And she treats her with contempt. And you can hear how this one's going. You know, you know, Hagar, would you go grab something for me? Well, no way. I'm pregnant. At least I can have babies and you can't. Okay, you just, you can almost hear them echoing, the words echoing in here. Okay. So, yeah, this is just a great story. All right, all right. Under see, she looked with contempt on her mistress, and Sarai said to Abram, "May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me." You just hear Abraham going, "It was your idea. Why is this my fault?" Yeah. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Interesting that the angel would speak to her 
not to say Hagar, but speak to her according to her office. Hagar, servant of Sarai. Even heaven affirms her position here. Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Direct order from heaven, right? The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. I don't think that's a great thing. Um, <laughs> there's other terms that you can throw in there. Um, his, hand, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So here we've got this story. It's history. It's not mythology. This actually happened. It took place. Okay, If you would take a, a reality television show crew and all their equipment back in time, you would have this to play on television as a reality TV show. Okay, That's what this is. And what we've got going on here is this continued struggle and story and the, and the travail and just the life challenges of some of a man who trusts the promises of God and knows that God has promised this incredible thing and in trying to assist God and help God out in this matter takes matters into his own hands and kind of makes things worse. Now, Ishmael and Isaac, this whole story then gets rolled up into the New Testament. And it's played out in the writings of Paul regarding works righteousness versus salvation by grace through faith. Now, what I want to do here, and there's a reason why I do this. Funny, I did this a few years ago with a different class. What I want to do here is I want to read about this in the book of Galatians. What I want to do, though, because remember, the three most important things when you're reading Scripture are context, context, and context. I actually want to spend some time reading the book of Galatians itself. Because the argument by itself, you can pick it out and pull it out and examine it and look at it. But when you keep it in its full context, Galatians you can read it pretty quickly. The whole thing takes on a different element altogether when you see it and read it in context. So if you have your pew Bibles in front of you, follow along. I will uh, read from my online Bible and try to comment as important. And so what's going to happen is, is the story of Ishmael, Hagar, Sarai, and Isaac. We haven't gotten to the Isaac part. gets rolled up into Scripture. It's interesting how this now plays out regarding salvation by grace alone through faith of all. By the way, the book of Galatians, um, if you read other epistles, epistle basically means letter, that Paul has written to, the, uh, to other churches, those other epistles generally start off with grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's wonderful for me to think about you of all the times I pray for you, da-da-da-da-da. This one doesn't have that opening, okay? Just so you know what's going on here, um, context always dictates. 
the early Christian church, you would think of it as pristine, right? We want to get back to first century Christianity. Well, let me describe to you some of the things going on there. First century Christianity, almost out of the chute, is already dealing with false doctrine and doctrinal struggles regarding how free is the free gift of God. You've got, the, you've got Jews and Pharisees who acknowledge Christ as their Savior, who then turn around and say, yeah, but you're not really saved unless you're circumcised. You're not really saved unless you're keeping the Mosaic Law. You want to know what the early Christian church, the pristine church, was marked with? Doctrinal battles. So, if we're having good old doctrinal battles, we're in step with the pristine first century church. We have a lot in common. Okay, So, Paul, writing to the Galatian churches, because these Judaizers had come in and basically said, unless you do these things, you cannot be saved. You have to follow the, the Moses plan. Otherwise, you're not saved. Circumcision, new moon festivals, the whole nine yards. Right? So Paul, pretty, being pretty short with him, says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Opening sentences start off with him giving his credentials. I'm an apostle and not by men, but by Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us up from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace, um, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, or eternally condemned, or accursed. As we have said before, in case you didn't hear me, let me say my point again. This is a tactic that my mom used on me when I was a kid. Kind of stuck. It's a good mnemonic device. You know, when you're disciplining a child... You tell them what they did wrong and what's going on here. And just to make your point clear, you do it again. Okay? It's always fun to do. I do it myself. So Paul, in the sense of scolding these people, says, Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed as we have said before. I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Apparently, Paul had not been to one of the major Ivy League schools and didn't understand the importance of being politically correct. Now he asks this question, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Apparently, the pleasing man and being a servant of Christ are two mutually exclusive concepts. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is important. Why? It's not man's gospel. Even today, we live in the middle of doctrinal conflict and controversy, and there are those who are redefining. the new. It's called the new perspective on Paul. Paul wasn't teaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And he wasn't saying that you can, be, you can have a righteousness imputed to you that's not your own. That's ridiculous. 
the new perspectives on Paul, people say, no, 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 no. He was talking about salvation through being part of a community. I kid you not. Major proponent of this is Tom Wright. So he's saying that his gospel was not, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. So he's kind of giving, laying this out. Where did Paul get his gospel, by the way? Quick quiz question. Where did he get it from? Jesus Christ directly. Okay? Because if you remember, Paul wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't, he wasn't following Jesus all over the Judean countryside during Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul even says that he's an apostle who was abnormally born. He came into apostleship kind of through a, a backdoor escape clause. Okay? He met all the requirements, sort of, kind of, except for the one except for being with Jesus like his, during his, his ministry from the beginning. All right. So then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you, uh, to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went again into the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, were only, uh, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Notice he's giving all of his credentials. Okay. You ever listen? You ever hear an interview with John Warwick Montgomery? You know when they introduce him. You know professor emeritus and this and that and the barrister in court. All the credentials. Well, we live in a society, in a postmodern society. Credentials are supposed to mean that you're on the wrong side of things. You know, you're, that's just too modern in your thinking. You're think, putting God in a box, and your credentials don't mean anything. Hogwash. They do mean something. Christ says, study and show yourself approved. So here Paul is laying out his credentials. Okay? You know, basically making it very clear. Opposing and contradicting the gospel that he preached is tantamount to opposing the very gospel that he received from Jesus Christ. Paul's authority isn't in himself. Paul's authority comes from Christ directly. Okay? Now, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So he goes to Jerusalem... He lays out his gospel. Here's the, here's the gospel that I got from Jesus. Let me lay it out for you. Here's what I've been preaching. What do you guys say? And they said, are you nuts? Salvation is through community. It's not through Christ. I'm kidding. They didn't say that. 
Okay, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Wow, those are some pretty strong words. We didn't even yield to the Judaizers for a moment. No compromises. Americans work off the concept of compromise. Our entire legal system and our entire governmental system is built off of it. You want to get things done, you take two people, you got one extreme over here, you got another extreme over here, and you come to the bargaining table and you start compromising and hammering out something that's pleasing to both. Not with the gospel. When a Judaizer comes in or a legalist and says, you cannot be saved unless you do X, Y, and Z, you are to not submit to them even for a moment. We're not going to compromise with you. Why? So that other people can hear the gospel and be saved. That's the way you treat it. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added... Nothing to me. They added nothing to his gospel. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through um, me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There goes the whole idea of the infallibility of a papal of a pope. Right? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Okay, there's so much for the go-to-him-privately part. What, what did Paul do here? He rebuked him in front of everybody. Again, apparently not. he hasn't been trained by evangelicals. You, know, that you don't cause division by saying things publicly. When I saw their conduct was not except the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed Okay, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, 
Is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I too have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is an interesting play on words here, this verse 21. You would expect, because the way we're kind of wired, you would expect him to say, I do not nullify the law. Paul's running this thought right through the gospel. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Interesting. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is it the former or the latter? Which is it? By hearing with faith. And that runs contrary to what we would think naturally. Oh, we received the Spirit because we repented and we did these good works and we cleaned up our act and we became this and we followed the law. No, no, no. You received the Spirit because you listened with faith? Can't possibly be. Just hearing with faith? It cannot be that simple. You didn't do anything. Right? See, the gospel is such a scandal. It is so scandalous. And it's so absurd to our way of thinking and to the way the world thinks. And the, if I do this, then God owes me that. The quid pro quo way of thinking regarding God. They received the Spirit because they just heard with faith. What? They didn't go out and feed the poor. They didn't go out and, and go on a mission trip. They didn't... Come on. Yeah, and even the faith is a gift. Other passages of Scripture make that perfectly clear. A bunch of people just sitting around doing nothing but listening with faith. Right. Yeah, the pastor, in a sense, takes your head and pours the Word of God into your ears. Right? That's what, that's what they do. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's this Abraham stuff. Jesus is all over the Abraham story. It's, it's so there. It, it, it takes weeks to get through it all. So know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by 
faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Let me read that again. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want to be saved by the law? Get busy. you got to keep the whole thing. It's a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Once you sign a contract, it's a done deal. Okay, you can't go back and modify it. You, you know, not without the other person agreeing to the modification. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Not Isaac, it's Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. Remember, last week we talked about the two covenants. The one covenant... Abraham is snoozing through the whole thing. God's done all the work. Abraham might as well have been dead. The other covenant is on Sinai. And with each thou shalt not, there's peals of thunder and lightning and and smoke and fire. And everyone's going... And at the end of it, they say, Moses, you talk to God. Because if we have to listen to him, we'll die. Right? Two completely different things. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? You can paraphrase this and say, why did God give us the law in the first place then? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Good logical question. Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So is there a law that can give life? No. But the Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See that? The Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin. Everyone. All of us. 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. This is important. Listen to how he's describing this. It's captivity and imprisonment and slavery under the law. Why would you want to go back to that? Been there, done that. You wither under it. Great word the pastor used today in the sermon was hopelessness. There is no hope under the law. The law cannot offer you any hope. Unless, of course, you're keeping it perfectly. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ooh, baptismal talk. He sounds like a Lutheran preacher here. For as many of you who were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now this is where this Hagar stuff comes in. Got all the context? That was a long road to hoe, but you've got to keep it in its full context so you get its full weight. Moving on. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So we've all seen this, you know, the stories. You know, what's the, what's the, about you know, the king who dies and he has a young son. And he's held, a, you know, he's under a guardian until he comes of age to when he become a king, right? And what happens, the guardian always goes evil and tries to kill the little kid, right? We, that's a, these are deep in our collective consciousness, if you would. But, you know, so the, the, here's the idea is, is that, I mean, as long as, the heir, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Good cross-reference to this. When Paul talking about the elementary principles of the world, go to the book of Colossians. I don't have the passage offhand, but he says the elementary principles of the world. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, do not this. Right? Those are the elementary principles. Okay? But when the fullness of time had come, God uh, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. Redeem means purchase. This is an important thing here. This redemption talk is purchase talk. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Talking about the law. You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, beseech you, become as I become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though, uh, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. A little side note here. This is the passage where people argue that Paul probably had a, a, an ailment in his eyes. And that might have been the thorn in the flesh, This is the, they speculate. And, you know, having, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yeah, actually, that's how you become someone's enemy. You, you tell them the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Watch how he's rolling this all up. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born. Uh, with, uh, wait a second here. Let me back this up a second here. There you go. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave, one by the free. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. So Paul, watch what he's doing here. And we don't have the liberty to interpret things allegorically ourselves. I want to make that clear. Okay, Paul is doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As they say on some of those TV shows, don't try this at home. Okay, Very careful with allegory. Here Paul is doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now these may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This really has a lot of punch when you read it in context. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, who you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen away from grace. Don't tell me you can't lose salvation. Apostasy ends in hell. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await or wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persecution is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. That's the lobotomy procedure. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. I'm going to have to end here. Pick this up next week. Mm-hmm.